what a fantastic time of worship together. It's so phenomenal, all the different folks that have helped us put this whole thing together over the last couple of weeks. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Pastor Carl. I'm one of the pastors around here. And I'm so glad we are jumping into our next week of When Our World Turns Upside Down. Now I gotta tell you, I've had seasons in my life where that has been the exact thing that's happened, where the world has turned upside down on me. And, and you know, I had a, a, a senior pastor friend of, a friend of mine, and, and he just gave me this word and really is a true hope and inspiration for this whole message of what to do in those seasons when fear seems to be shrinking my faith. And he really showed me the direction by pointing me to the great philosopher, Charlie Brown. Yeah, that's right, Charlie Brown, who said this, there is no problem so big I can't run away from it. There's no problem so big that I can't run away from it. Good grief, right? Like, that's what it feels like sometimes when fear takes control of us, and it feels like the only option we have is to run. And people are afraid of a lot of different things. I don't know where you stand on this, right? My wife is deathly afraid of scorpions. She finds them wherever she goes. But then there's people, you know, there's arachnophobia. Remember that old movie, right? People who are afraid of spiders. Every Baptist kid knows what I'm talking about with sermonophobia, fear of long sermons, right? Uh, There's thanatonophobia. I didn't say that right, but I think it is. It's the fear of death. You've heard this old saying that goes like this, uh, Um, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's a real fear for so many. But here's the deal. There's some facts that we've got to understand about fear. Like number one, fear is not from God. Fear is not from God. Second Timothy says this, and we've probably heard this a lot over the last couple of weeks. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't desire that for you as you're facing these pandemic-sized issues and problems in your life. Number two, fear is forbidden. Fear is forbidden. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 41. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look upon you. Do not look anxious about you for I am your God. Literally this word right here, these three words, do not fear in some form or do not fear, do not be afraid over 360 times, actually 366 times. This is the most pronounced command in all of scripture that we would not fear, that we would not be afraid. God gave us Uh, uh, do not fear for every day of the year plus one. Do you think it was important to him? And number three, fear is destructive. And this is where I really want to land today. Fear is destructive to everything about our heart space and our head space. And we see this played out so clearly in 1 Samuel 17. I want to give you some context for our passage. 1 Samuel 17 is the story, the historical, beautiful story of David Goliath. Good verse, bad. Big verse, small. The, the mighty verse, the little. And in 1 Samuel 17, you have the figure Goliath. Now, Goliath is from Gath. He is part of the Philistine army. They are this this rough and tough group that has been picking and battling the Israelites for many, many years. Now, Goliath is not any ordinary warrior. Goliath stands over nine feet tall. And you thought you had big problems. 
He stands over nine feet tall. His his body armor weighs over 125 pounds. The head of his spear weighs almost a dozen pounds alone. And he's going to face David. Yeah, yeah, that David. And David, at this period, is somewhere between 10 and 17. So David's a teenager facing this grown, grown man in Goliath. David is from Bethlehem, which is this little outskirt town. He's a shepherd boy. This is like truly against all odds. And this destructiveness that comes over, not David, but the nation of Israel and their present king, Saul. And what happens here is they begin to take some steps, really four destructive steps that begin to overtake the nation of Israel and their king, Saul. I want to look at the first destructive step that Israel took. They were focused only on the problem. First Samuel 17 says this, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistines camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. On his legs where they were bronze, and he had a bronze javelin that he slung on his back. His spear shaft was like the weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Goliath stood, and here it is. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? He's like, why are you guys even showing up? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? He looks at the nation of Israel. He looks at these people on this battlefield. He goes, no, no, you're Saul's servants, aren't you? And then he makes this request. Choose a man and have him come down to me. Now, you got to understand this in the, in the historical context where they are. The nation of Israel, their army is on one side of this valley. The Philistines are on another side of the valley. Goliath comes down to the center of the valley, and he challenges the nation of Israel and their King Saul. And what he does here is called representative warfare. Representative warfare, we see this in Homer's Iliad where Paris and, and I think it's men alike because they fight, they fight each other. But in, in, in that story, we see where one opponent from one, one, one person, soldier from one army, will challenge another soldier from another army. And the hope in this is this, it would spare lives. If these two soldiers fight each other, then everybody doesn't have to fight. But whoever wins the battle of these two soldiers, their nation is the victor. So Goliath, the nine foot giant, goes, goes to the Israelites and says, hey, I'll fight any of you. Choose a man and have him come down. But what happens in that instance is Israel's just looking at the problem. They're not even thinking about the chance of a potential victory. They're just saying, here is our problem. How many of us, if we're really honest, we're thinking today, I've just got a big problem. I don't see anything on the other side. I can only see where I'm at right now. That would be the destructive first step that you've taken. The second step that they take is they expect it to be defeated. In 2 Samuel 17, 11, it says, on hearing the Philistines' word, I just stopped right there. Simply on hearing 
his words, they were dismayed and terrified. Goliath doesn't even have to do anything. And they're like, nope, it's over. We're done. They're, they're beat down. Come on, if we're honest, over the last couple of weeks, you just click on CNN, MSN, Fox News, whatever you listen to, BBC, and just hearing the news, you're like, ugh, here we are. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Dave talked about the virus of sin that we all had and kind of staying with that theme. I think many of us today are struggling with the disease of discouragement. The disease of discouragement, which tells us we expect to be defeated. Pastor Rick Warren, he, he, he puts it this way. He says, there are four different strains of the discouragement disease. The first one is a universal disease. It's we all get discouragement. There's a contagious disease of discouragement. You can catch it from those around you. There's a repeating disease. You can catch it more than once. And there is a deadly disease. Discouragement can wreck your life and ruin your future. That's exactly where the Israelites find themselves. But can I tell you, friends, the most dangerous thing in this world, the most epic thing that could stop the disease of discouragement is an encouraged follower of Jesus Christ. An encouraged, hopeful follower of Jesus Christ. That's what stands in the way. The third destructive step they took is they had an attitude of self-protection. Have you heard this story? You've got to have read this already. That there was a man, uh, I think in Tennessee, who, as all of this, this stuff started happening around the world, kind of caught wind and, and said, I'm going to jump on this hand sanitizer thing. He, he was hand sanitizer, not, not toilet paper, right? And, and he goes and buys over 17,000 separate units of hand sanitizer from all over Tennessee and into Kentucky. This man, and it's just all in his garage. He thinks he's going to, you know, hit the jackpot. And, you know, he got caught and Amazon shut him down. But what did he do that many of us have done the last couple weeks, if we're honest? We find moments where we gain an attitude of self-protection, where we stop thinking of others, we stop thinking of what's outside of us, and just start kind of internalizing how we are existing. It says this, As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. Why is this so good? It's so good because this is over 30 days. For almost 40 days, Goliath comes down into the valley and challenges the Israelites. He calls out to them every single day. He steps out of his line. And you know what I think was happening on the Israelite side? I think every day when Goliath would come down and step out of his line, I think they would take a step back and another and another. So by day 29, the Israelite army that should be the standard front that's ready to attack, that's ready to battle, is is kind of split apart as they've kind of splintered in their attitude of self-protection. Really internalize that for a moment. How connected have you been with others over the last couple of weeks? How generous have I been with others over the last couple of weeks? Isn't the beautiful contracts, the beautiful paradox to this is in Acts in the New Testament, the church, the beginning of the church. Scripture tells us they shared all their possessions. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being 
saved. Because there wasn't this attitude of self-protection and they held the line together. God added to their numbers those who were being saved. How many folks need someone to reach out to them and and give a little bit of themselves? Be generous in, maybe not even goods, but generous in your time, generous in your words versus just this inwardly focused thing. And finally, they ran from their problems. In verse 24, it says, when the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they all ran from him in great fear. They all ran from him in great fear. Now, this one, I want to pause right here. And I want to put aside everything that's going on in our world right now. Everything that's got all of our attention. I want to put all that aside. And I want to ask you a question. What problem are you running from today? This has nothing to do with the things going on in our world. Our world being upside down. But is there a conversation with a spouse you need to have? Is there a phone call to a child you need to make? Is there a reconciliation that needs to happen with you and something that you said to your boss or your employee in the midst of all of this? Or are you still running because you're afraid? See, that's what fear does. Fear tells us to be focused only on our problems, to expect to be defeated, to have an attitude of self-protection and to run from our problems. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. Instead of having a spirit of fear, of having a spirit of faith. Now, what I love about the story of David and God, which is a true story about real people and real events that actually happened, is that in the story of David and Goliath, what David's is, is a mist, a fog, kind of showing what's going to happen in the future. It's not a specific prophecy. He's he's not Jesus incarnate, but he's a Jesus-type character in Scripture that shows us the, the values and character of Jesus. So there is this kind of mist all over this Scripture pointing towards Jesus. So if David is in fact the Jesus character, Goliath being the enemy kind of figure, who are we? We're the scared Israelites. We're Saul. We're the line that keeps splintering and backing off. We're up on the mountaintop waiting for things to get settled in the valley. But Jesus is telling us today, would you make a courageous choice to step in, step out, and get in the game? Exactly what David does. Five courageous choices. Five courageous choices that David makes foreshadowing who Jesus is. The first one is, David was focused on God. Instead of being focused on the problem, David's focused on God. David asked the man standing near near him, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who's this pagan who's this non-believer that he should defy the armies of who the living god come on somebody 
the living God. David's like, this isn't a God who's like a maybe God, a kind of God, a God who hasn't shown up before. This is the living God. And here is this non-believer speaking against him. I'm not focused on the problem. I'm focused on my God. Are you focused on your God? Do you know the name of your father? Because when you know the name of your father, you know who you are. I love that song we sang earlier that said, we will, he will do it again. The things that I think that I want, that I hope that God will do, God will do them again. The second courageous choice David made was he anticipated God's help. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. You got to get this. Before David was king, before David was giant slayer, spoiler alert, David was a shepherd boy. David was a shepherd boy who, who took care of his father's sheep. Out in the wilderness, David would hang daily with these animals, tending them. But you got to understand, you got a herd of sheep with you. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have some predators trying to get that sheep. And what David would do, Scripture tells us, is David defeated lions. David defeated bears. David would attack those that were trying to take his. He anticipated God's help. And he continues, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and will strike you down. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Ready? Come on, somebody. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into my hands. David knew this truth. He knew God's going to show up and the battle is already God's. We've said this over and over throughout this series. Come, listen, there is no alarm bells going off in heaven. No alarm bells going off in heaven. Jesus isn't like, home, oh, 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 dad, oh, dad, oh, me, what is going No. The battle already belongs to God. Are you anticipating God's help? Are you anticipating God showing up? From my background, the black church, we have this saying, where, where, where we'd be worshiping and we'd talking back to the preachers and, you know, kind of giving the thing. And, and the preacher would say something that is true about God. And, and we would respond, won't he do it? You can practice that in your living room right now, wherever you are. You drive it. Won't he do it? That's saying, God, the battle is yours. And won't he do it? It's not a question. It's, it's with an exclamation at the end. We are emphatically saying, won't he do it? Because he's done it before. So he'll do it again. I anticipate God's help. Next. David insisted on being involved, insisted on being involved. Jump down to the passage when he goes, you came down only to watch. This is David's brother speaking to him. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, what have I done, David says. What have I done? Because he, he, he says, can I even speak? David said to Saul, hundreds of men are standing on this valley top, not wanting to get involved. But David says, no, no, no. I'm getting in the game. And he speaks to Saul. Let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with him and fight him. Your servant will go and fight him. David said, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to get into the game. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to help be a solution to this issue. Again, I told you, here's the mist of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just wait in heaven to see what happens. Jesus says, I'm going to get involved in what's going on down in my father's world. 
and he leaves heaven and comes to earth and gets into the game. Jesus gets into the game, but why does he do this? He, he does this so that we wouldn't question. We wouldn't rattle off in our head space, in our heart space. Jesus, do you, do you know what it's like for me? Because Jesus says, I get it. I remember hearing this story by Max Licato. Max talked about this dad who's watching a movie one evening with his daughter. And every time this mouse comes on the screen, the daughter would scream and she, she's just so afraid of this mouse. And the dad would say to her, he's not real. He's just on television. But later on, after he puts the little girl to bed, he's thinking more and more about it. Lakato writes this. I wish our fears were just like television images. They are not. Our fears lurk in hospital rooms, funeral parlors. They stare at us from divorce papers and eviction notices. They glare through the eyes of cruel parents and abusive spouses. There are times when mice roar. There are times when we need a strong pair of arms. We need to know that the arms of God are there. Friends, in this season that we find ourselves in, Jesus left heaven and earth to tell you he's here. He's involved. And you can run to the arms of the Father. Next faithful, the next courageous choice they made was he took time to prepare. So Saul dresses David in all of his garbs. He gives David his tunic, he gives him a coat, his coat of armor. He gives David all of his stuff, kingly battle material. But then David says, I cannot go in these. I cannot go in these. David instead says, I'm not going to use them. So he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the perch of his shepherd bag, what he killed the lions and bears with, and with his sling and his hand approached the Philistine. David took the time not to prepare with what somebody else had, but to prepare with what he has. Oscar Wilde says it best where he says, Be yourself because everyone else is already taken. Be you because everyone else is already taken. And I want you to go back and think for a moment. Is there something that God did in your life six days ago, six weeks ago, six months ago, six years ago that was preparing you for this moment? That was preparing you for this season and not to enter this season with the hysteria and the panic that everybody else has got, but to come in with the promises that God's already given to you. I love the way the writer in Hebrews puts it. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Our high priest, Jesus, can empathize with our weakness, meaning Jesus, yet he did not sin in his divinity, understands what it's like to be you in your humanity. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. And he took the 33 and a half years to live amongst us so you would never have to wonder, does God know what it's like to be me? Yes, he does, my friend. He took on flesh and bone. And there is nothing that Jesus went through There is nothing in this world that Jesus went through that went in vain because he did it all to understand what it's like to to be you and that you could reflect back and go, he knows 
where I am. He knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows what it's like to be worried. He knows what it's like to be concerned. But he faithfully chose to be obedient to the Father. Finally, David goes with the five smooth stones and it only takes one shot and he throws it up from his sling and he kills the giant. Goliath, the nine feet, all of him, falls down on the valley floor and people are awestruck. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judea surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistine. I love this. David gets the victory. God gets the victory. Jesus defeats death on the cross. And then we move. He had an impact on everyone around him. They saw Jesus' faith. We see Jesus' faith. They saw David's faith. They saw David's trust. And then they reacted. How many people in your world are waiting for your then? Are waiting for your then? For you to step up for you to step out in a faithful move. Simple choices to have faith, to be focused on God, to anticipate God's help, to insist on being involved, took the time to prepare and had an impact on everyone around him. Faith motivates faith and fear motivates fear. I want to be on the faithful side in this season when we face these pandemic-sized giants. I remember hearing this story about this girl named Lisa. Lisa wanted so badly in high school to be on the cheerleading squad. And she worked her tail off all junior year. And she finally makes the team. But then, the summer entering her senior year, tragedy comes upon. And Lisa has a terrible accident and she actually loses her leg. But she trains and trains and trains with this new prosthetic leg. And comes back to the school board and says, hey, I'm ready. I want to be on the team again. And, And they say, hey, it's all on you. We'll allow you to do it, but all the risk is in your hands and her family says yep we're willing to do it and then in the first big homecoming event of the year the band is playing the gym is full of students home team away team the cheerleading squad comes out to do its routine and lisa has this big moment where she's got to do a tumble across the baseline and the very worst thing imaginable happens As Lisa does her tumble, her prosthetic leg flies off and slides across the silent gym floor. Hundreds and hundreds of people just standing in awe. And Lisa puts her hands, puts her face in her hands for eternal seconds and has a decision to make. What am I going to do? next and lisa does the most courageous thing she waves over to a friend to help her get the leg she puts the prosthetic back on 
She gives the direction to the band director to start over and the squad to start the routine from the top. And in front of a crowd, standing on their feet, in front of a wild ovation, she completes the entire performance. That's courage. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is the commitment to continue. So with the giants that face you right now, are you choosing fear or courageously choosing faith? I believe we enter into this season fighting these pandemic-sized problems with a God-filled, Jesus-given, Holy Spirit-powered courage and faith. Won't he do it? Yes, he will. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who points us to faith and not fear. And as we face these pandemic-sized issues in our world and in our hearts, Lord Jesus, may we turn to them with courage, with boldness, with faith that is of you. For every person that's going through a season where they need to get an extra dose of that faith, Lord Jesus, may they seek you in a personal way, with a personal relationship, and say yes to you, that they would trust you and give you their all, knowing that you are their victor, you are their hope, and that they would give their entire life to you. Give them that courage to make that great choice and that great step. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.